Now listen, uh, I know that you're getting accustomed to using hvc.info and uh, filling in the connect form and all of that, but also at hvc.info are sermon notes. Of course, we don't hand those out at the door anymore, uh, but uh, to follow along with the message, the outline is there, any quotes that I use and uh, any links that I happen to give you, other references, is all, it's all right there in the, in, uh, in the sermon notes. So take advantage of those. Um, as we look at God's Word here today and have the Word of God open in front of you as well. We'll be reading through the passage in just a few moments. Well, just uh, we're going to start this message by quoting from the Buddha. So that might seem interesting to some. The last words of the Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, the last words of the Buddha before he died were this, work hard to gain your own salvation. Work hard to gain your own salvation. The professor at Andrews University in Michigan, Rudy Mayer, wrote a paper on um, Buddhism, and he said this, for the Buddhist, when it comes to the matter of salvation, every person is on his or her own. Okay, for the Buddhist, when it comes to the matter of salvation, every person is on his or her own. Uh, the interesting uh, thing about that, of course, is that I believe that it isn't just Buddhists that believe that. That that's a pretty pervasive attitude today, and in our overwhelmingly secular culture, and, and by that I mean our culture is very irreligious, um, we, uh, we find that most people who think about these things would, would deem religion, or, or more broadly, not just religion, would deem the pursuit of fulfillment or meaning or happiness most people would see that pursuit as being a very personal thing. They would see religion as being a very personal thing. In this individual culture in which we live, it's like every person deciding what's best for me, and I carve out a path that's very distinct and and very individually designed just for me. And so, in today's passage, when we when we, when we uh, hear what Paul has to say about that very matter, we understand that any personal pursuit of salvation on my terms or religion on my terms or finding fulfillment on my terms is actually going to fall really short. The honest person is going to admit that they really don't know if that plan that they've designed for themselves, they don't really know if that's going to work. And so Paul takes us to the place where we understand that we as sinners are incapable of saving ourselves, no matter how much effort we put into it. We have all, and here's a couple of phrases from the passage that we'll read in a moment. We've all turned aside. Together, we have become worthless. Verse 17 says, the way of peace we have not known. No matter how hard we've worked to achieve it, can't find peace. But there is someone committed to helping you find that way of peace. And what it's going to take is an admission of your own helplessness and to reach out to Him by faith to receive the gift that He offers. And so we're going to take another deep dive into Romans today. Now, uh, thankfully, a shorter passage than last week. If you uh, survived last week's marathon passage, you've uh, arrived at a shorter series of verses, but no less impactful um, today. So this is uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to get uh, looking at these verses. Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews 
and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, in your notes, if you're following along, if I'm to walk in the way of peace, I must admit my sinfulness, but here's the first problem. We're going to look at this, but I'm inclined to resist the obvious. I'm, I'm inclined to resist the very obvious thing that we are all sinners. Now, Paul says in verse 9, what then? That starts this passage. He's going to sum up the argument that he's making from the very first part of Romans when he opened the letter all the way to this point in, in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's summing up his argument. He's saying, now what then? Well, at the end of the day, with all the things I've already said, here's the conclusion of the matter. And he says, are we Jews any better off. In other words, we religious folks, we who have the Bible, we who have this uh, privilege from God, are we any better off than any other human being? And to that, Paul says, no, not at all. In fact, back in chapter 2, verse 11, he had said, God shows no partiality. So whether you have the privilege of having the Word of God and being raised in a church and being in a believing context, or whether you don't have those things, God's showing no partiality. Everybody's falling under the judgment of God. It's something that's universal for all of humanity. He says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both of whom were now in the church in Rome, all are under sin. All of humanity, in other words, is caught in sin's net, and that should be obvious, but I don't know why that's so hard for some people, except that I understand that in our culture today, the thing that we just most desperately want to believe is that humanity is essentially good, and we want to tap into that and encourage that. And education really is built around that in our culture today. We want to believe that at the essential core, human beings are good. But that's not the truth. And I think we know that. I was saying, we, we raised, Cheryl and I raised our own kids. Now we're into the grandparent phase. All our kids are married. Uh, we've already got a grandchild. We have another one coming. And we remember back to our own child rearing with our own kids. But of course, now we're seeing it in our grandchild. And those of you who are parents or grandparents will know this. You know, it doesn't take very long for that beautiful, sweet child that God gave you. It doesn't take very long for the sin nature actually to pop out. In fact, before the child... Tell me if this isn't true. Before the child walks or talks, the sin nature manifests itself. And they'll do it in, in something. They know there's something, even before they can say a word, before they can walk anywhere, there's something they know they're not allowed to touch because you've told them not to. And they're right up against it. And you can see they're looking at the thing. And then they look back at you. 
And then they look back at the thing, and right away you know. Temptation is there. They experience it. They're they're showing us what Paul is teaching us right here, that all of humanity is caught in sin's net. We don't like the idea that we're sinners. Even even Christians don't like this. We, We want to believe that humanity is essentially good. We want to believe that because that plays far better with the unsaved people, the unbelieving people that are in our lives. It plays better with our neighbors and our co-workers to just kind of rah, rah humanity. And yes, human beings are essentially good. We want to believe that. But we do ourselves no favors if we do. We reason that because we're created in the image of God, we do have good in us that's from God. But we ignore that the good in us, which I do not deny is there, Paul does not deny is there, the good in us is overshadowed in a catastrophic way by sin. In fact, we have a sin nature that's baked in. It's baked in. And it's as much a part of who we are as the good that comes from the image of God that is also baked into who we are. In fact, those two natures are at war within us. It's a pitched battle over control. And if we look, in fact, back to Genesis chapter 3, and we, we look at the second generation of human beings, Cain and Abel, born to Adam and Eve. One's the good boy and one's the bad boy sin nature at work. And by good, by saying that Abel was the good boy, he was the good son, by saying that we do not mean that Abel was without sin, all we mean by that is that Abel had a cherished relationship with the Creator, with his God. And Cain did not have a cherished relationship with his God. And so, that path that Cain chose led to hatred and deceit and to violence and to murder. So whenever we see good in a person, that is the image of God in that person. It's God's goodness coming out of that person. Whether they're a believer or not, any goodness that you see originates with God and is put into us when God created us. It's part of the image of God. But whenever we see even the smallest sin, even the smallest sin in an infant, in a, to- in a toddler, in a baby, that is evil that has tainted the good thing that God has created. And that, it seems to me, should be obvious to all of us. But it does escape us whenever we want to conveniently believe that human beings are essentially good. Now, Paul goes on to say, verse 10 now, as it is written, and when he says this, what he's going to do now is he's been building this huge argument through chapters 1, 2, into chapter 3. Now, he's going to bring to bear a series of seven Old Testament passages, Hebrew Scriptures. He's going to tap into the Word of God to show how God says this very thing. And uh, he quotes uh, primarily from the Psalms. He's going to quote one from Isaiah, one we'll see from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can find out all the specific references if you just look into the footnote of your Bible. There's a progression to what he says here. His thesis, of course, his main argument is none is righteous, no, not one. That's verse 10. Then verse 11, he says, no one understands. In other words, when it comes to this sin issue, 
sin has so tainted or marred us, we actually can't even get there at the thinking level. And this is why we want to continue to believe in our heads that humanity is essentially good. Because no one understands. The battle is actually begun right in our minds with an argument. Then he says, no one seeks for God. This is from Ecclesiastes 7.20. No one seeks for God. We don't of our own will look to be in a relationship with God. We do not of our own will read the Scriptures and want to find God in the Scriptures. We resist that with every fiber of our being. Left to ourselves, we'd never search for God. And, and, and yet some of us here, here might go, you know what, but there was a time in my life and I didn't know the Lord. And I, I started to seek after Him. I would call that seeking. I, I was interested in reading the Bible. I was talking to Christians. I went to church for the first time. I started to hear some preaching. I was drawn to worship music, whatever it was. And you feel like you were seeking God. But please understand what was happening in that moment. That was not you of your own accord initiating a search for God. That was already in your unbelieving, pre-believer state, that was the Holy Spirit already beginning to work in your life to draw you to Himself. It's God who does the seeking. It's God who does the drawing. And in fact, I would just say this, if that's you, whether you're watching on the live stream right now or you're here in the room, if that's you and you're just going like, I'm not a believer yet, I haven't made my commitment to Christ, but I feel like a drawing I feel like I should be investigating this. Please understand that is not you. That is the Holy Spirit already working in your life. Do not resist His work. Let Him have His way with you and let Him draw you into a relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. So no one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside you know, we, we pursue our own way. We're not seeking for God, that's for sure. So we're pursuing our own way. We go, you know, back to the Buddha's words. We're working hard to gain our own salvation. We've picked our own path. Then together, all of humanity have become worthless, meaning that we're, we're just so completely and utterly lost the chasm between us and God is so complete and so wide, it's Unable to be crossed. No one does good. We still have this unresolved sinfulness, which is the whole point of Romans 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he made the point, speaking about unbelievers who don't have the Word of God, that they are nevertheless without excuse because the creation testifies to the existence of God. And so even though they don't have the Word and the explicit teaching of the Scriptures, they can look at how the creation operates, they can look at the universe and the natural order, and they should be able to see the designer in all of that. And so they are without excuse, though they are totally committed to their immorality. Chapter 2 tells us that the Jewish people who have the Scriptures have the direct revealed testimony of God and are in the pursuit of morality as a way to approach God, that both of those groups, both those pursuing immorality and those pursuing morality, both, both are without excuse. Both need God. All need to turn in faith. No one does good. Certainly not the one living the immoral life, chapter 1, and not even the one living the moral life, chapter 2. All are in need of Christ. And then he punches the point, not 
even one. With every step in what Paul has laid out for us from the Scriptures here, with every step we're resisting God. And our only hope is for God to seek us. And if again, if we go back to the early part of Genesis and the origin story, this is what A.W. Pink said about it. It was not Adam who sought God, but God who sought Adam. You remember? After sin had taken place, Adam and Eve had caved. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the Scriptures say. He couldn't, call, he couldn't find them. They, they weren't coming to him. And he, he called out and he said, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? God was seeking Adam. Adam was hiding from God, filled with shame. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling out to individuals and, and he's saying, where are you? Where are you? And he doesn't mean it in a geographical sense. He's asking it to you in that spiritual sense. Where are you in relationship to me? And he may be drawing some of you into a relationship with him right now. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Savior is the one doing the seeking. Jesus came to find you in your sin and save you. So let's listen to him and come to him. No more resisting. Well, that's, that's the first part of this. If I'm to walk in the way of peace, I must admit my sinfulness, but I'm inclined to resist the obvious. Then notice this, being, we're not done here. Okay, we're going to talk more about sin. Being all consumed by my own sin. Now Paul goes into a very graphic, difficult to read, devastating sector, sector, section where he presents descriptors of very personal sin. And John Stott in his commentary, he makes the point here that this is all encompassing in the sense that it affects the body, the mind, the will, emotions. Sin has so permeated every part of who we are. And what we understand is that our conscience has become so seared, in fact, that we have created these pathways to sin in our minds and in our hearts that make it so easy for us. We throw ourselves fully into it, thus the intense language of this passage, so that it comes down to this, you know, what I think and what I say and where I go and what I do and what I look at are all informed and all influenced by the sin nature in me. And so Paul starts with an area that I think we can all identify with, and it's sins of the mouth. It's how our words wound and, and pierce and cut into the lives of people even that we love. So he goes into this, and you know, we understand just even before we get into this, you know, Jesus said this in Luke 6:45. We understand that that sins of speech flow from the heart. And we know that because this is what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, so listen, so when we say something flippantly, when we say something that hurts, and then we try to pass it off as, well, I didn't really mean that. Please understand that Jesus says you did. Because he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We say things because our heart is in a bad place, dark place, and because it's infected by sin. And so he says, Paul writes here, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. 
An open grave is not a great thing. If, if you go back to the book of John, John's gospel, and, and um, Lazarus had died, Jesus' friend, and Jesus took four days to get there, so Lazarus' body was in the tomb for four days. Jesus gets there, of course, he wants to do a big miracle for everyone, and so he says to them, roll away the stone from the tomb. And everybody says to him, you can't roll away the stone because the body's been in there for four days. If you roll it away, it's going to, it's going to stink. There's a rotting corpse in there. And so Paul starts here so that we get this really graphic language. He's saying, when you open your mouth, what's coming out is the stink of a rotting corpse. That's how your words affect people. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, as if that language isn't strong enough. Verse 13 continues, the venom of asps is under their lips. You bite and and you poison relationships. You hurt people the way a snake hurts people when it bites them. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's honestly just hard to imagine if there are any sins worse than the ones we commit with our mouths. Repeatedly in the Proverbs, in the book of James, in Paul's other letters, we're warned about sins of the tongue. So let's, let's think about it. We don't do ourselves any favor if we just gloss over something like this and just keep going. Let's think about it. Gossip. Slander. Lying. Insults. Cutting sarcasm. Passive, aggressive comments, boasting, coarse language, flippant comments, empty flattery, sexual innuendo, hateful words, racist comments, sexist comments, angry words, bitter words, inappropriate jokes. It's venom. It's the stench of an open grave. Paul doesn't stop there. Sins of the mouth are just one thing he wants to deal with. He also says in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, their actions also betray that they're sinful. Murder, hatred, complicity and inaction with respect to those who are on the margins. We think, well, because I haven't hurt that person directly, but did you do anything to stop that person from being hurt? Did you turn a blind eye? Did you pretend it wasn't your problem? Our passivity condemns us. Verse 16, in their paths, in the paths of those who wound with their words, in the path of those who wound with their actions and their inactions, in their paths are ruin and misery. We cause pain and suffering in the lives of others directly and indirectly. Now, I know this is heavy. 
But this is so critical to what we believe. And in the book of Romans, which is the most powerful treatise that we have on the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's Paul spending, and again, we're on week three talking about sin. Here's Paul spending all this time inspired by the Holy Spirit to make sure we get it. Because we're laying out the foundation of what we believe here. And often think about students as they grow up in our church. You know, you have kids grow up in the church and they go all the way through Harvest Kids and Awana and they do Harvest Youth and then they graduate high school and they go off to university and they're really shocked when they take their first worldview course. And, and they're, so they're at college or university, they're taking a worldview course and they're like, how come no one ever told me about worldview before? And they don't realize really what's been happening the entire time that they've been growing up in the church is they've been developing a worldview. We don't use that language all the time, but I'm presenting to you a, the basis for a worldview right here. I'm talking to you today, even though we don't talk in these terms, about anthropology. And so the reality is we lay down our theology, we establish what we know about God, what we believe about Him, what's been revealed to us about Him. We establish our theology, and then we build upon that everything else. Our anthropology becomes a Christian anthropology. Our sociology becomes a Christian, so how we relate to the world, what we believe about humanity. Our psychology becomes a Christian psychology in the sense that we're now thinking the way God wants us to think, and this book informs all of those. And so you have a worldview. It's right here in the Word of God. We're developing it, and as we think about this worldview, we believe that humanity is sinful. And we believe that further we are unable to resolve that problem that we have. Though we were in fact created in the image of God, all of those are critical elements of our worldview, what we believe about humanity in this world. What we are not is what I've deemed here temporal optimists. This, this is what we find in the world more often than not. Temporal optimists who believe that the world is getting better by our efforts. That humanity, humanity is actually emerging from its more primitive ways into a more progressive and enlightened and harmonious future. That's what most people believe. That's the worldview that most people are pursuing today. Instead, we would believe as, as Christians, though we are still um, required to be good stewards to have dominion over the creation, to work for the good of the people that are around us, the cities that we live in, we are still continuing our horrific descent into horrors not yet imagined. That chaos is coming. In fact, when we think about these progressives and these, these temporal optimists who think the world is getting better, we need only point them to the 20th century as the argument against what they're teaching, what they believe. In fact, how many people here were born in the 20th century? Raise your hand if you were born in the 20th century. You can still raise your hand in a pandemic. I checked it out with the health unit, so raise your hand. So how many people don't know if they were born in the 20th century? Just raise your hand right now because that would be a little suspicious. Uh, Most of us, I would say, in this room were born in the 20th century, of course, born before uh, the year 2001. And um, 
The 20th century, as we look at all of recorded history, the 20th century was the most brutal, the most violent century in all of history. Whereas uh, some who have a different worldview would believe that because we're emerging out of our more primitive past, they would look back to the ancient stories, you, those movies we watch and those books that we read, and we go, it's such a brutal age, and people are so cruel with each other. The 20th century was far worse than any other century prior. Number one on the list by far. So how could we possibly look at the 20th century with its, with its brutal genocides, with its holocausts, with the constant warfare and the mechanization, the modernization of warfare that allowed us to murder people in great numbers and to do so smiling? How could we possibly believe that we're getting better? Well, the dawning of the 21st century came, and we're two decades in. Surely we're doing better. The 21st century started with 9-11. Barely eight months into the new century. The Twin Towers were attacked in the Pentagon. And that started, by the way, a war on terror, which continues to this day, which Canadian soldiers have also given their life for. 20 years of fighting the war on terror, with no end in sight, by the way. Pandemics. We are having our, hopefully, our great pandemic of this century. Poverty continues. Famines continue. We've not solved the issue of the marginalization of women or children around the world still pretty brutal on the environment. A whole litany of issues is before us, and we really don't have the mechanism, the most powerful nation in the world, folks. The one that trumpets liberty more than any other has seen massive chaos and increasingly polarization on both sides of the equation. How could anyone argue that we're actually getting better? In fact, we agree with Paul when he says in verse 17, the way of peace they've not known. How could anyone argue that in the 20th century or into the 21st century that we've known the way of peace in any way, shape, or form? In verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's for sure true, that despite all that's going on in the world, people still are not drawn to God. They're not turning to Him. The momentary blip of prayer and piety that followed 9-11 soon dissipated as people got back to their lives and New York was rebuilt. We can talk about this in broad terms all day long. I think we'd agree. We can talk about humanity in general but the solution is only solved one at a time. Not in broad sweeps, but in each individual coming to terms with this message, with this worldview, and surrendering themselves personally to Jesus Christ to find the forgiveness of sins. You and I are consumed with our own sin and and, and like Cain, the reality is that we like the way sin makes us feel. We like the power of it. We like the quick hit that it gives us. 
the satisfaction. We fall into the default setting of being sinful and we find comfort in the status quo. Let nothing change. But there's no peace in that plan. And if I'm to walk in the way of peace, I must admit my sinfulness. I'm inclined to resist the obvious. I'm all consumed with my own sin. And until I accept what God has revealed in His Word, nothing's going to change. I have to accept what God has revealed in His Word. And Paul, again, is pointing us to Scripture. He says this in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, I love that phrase, whatever the law says, Remember, we we talked about the law in terms of the Bible. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And, of course, he's quoted here from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, uh, from Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, and the Psalms. So, he's quoting from the breadth of the Scriptures. He's not just talking about the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Whatever the Bible says, Paul says. And I love that for us, that we would be in that place where we would go, you know, whatever decision is right in front of us, it's whatever the Bible says. Whatever this challenge is that we're going through, it's whatever the Bible says. Whatever this uh, relational upset that's going on in our lives, whatever the Bible says, and we just turn to the Scriptures and get under God's authority and hear what He has to say about it. We know that whatever the Bible says, let's get to that place And here's what it said about this topic. It speaks to those who are under the law. It speaks to those who actually have the Bible and knows what it says, so that every mouth may be stopped. This is as close as the Apostle Paul gets to saying, shut up. Shut up already. Don't you hear the Bible? Stop talking. Or as my dad would say, and he always did this with the hand motion every time because, you know, he had a son who talked a lot, my brother. Yeah, no, it's not my brother. My dad would just always say, zip it, zip it, zip it, zip it. I don't know if he ever did that to you, but dad would just say zip it, and Paul, that's what Paul's saying here, Okay. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that everyone would just zip it. Because you don't have a defense anyway. You, you, don't, you don't have any evidence, enough evidence of your sinlessness. You don't have any evidence of your sinlessness, so just keep quiet. And then he goes on to say, and the whole world, now that you're quiet, now that you're listening to the Word of God, the whole world may be held accountable to God, that is to say, facing judgment. That is what the Bible says, and no one is coming to faith in Jesus Christ apart from this. No one's getting fulfilled. No one's finding satisfaction. No one's going to be happy. No one's reaching nirvana, whatever you want to say about it. It's just not going to happen. No one's working hard enough without this admission and submission to the Word of God. And so, can you come to accept that you're a sinner? And if so, will you commit to living in a way that deals with sin as God would have you deal with it? I mean, so many people are still trying to be, you know, to be good as the way to God, and I fear that there are still some people here in this church, despite everything that we've heard from the Word of God over the years, that still some of us are falling into this temptation of believing that the good things we do are somehow earning us favor with God. And nothing could be further from the truth, and it hurts us in terms of understanding our salvation to believe that. 
And what Paul is really arguing here is that, that the law, the Bible, he's speaking specifically the Old Testament, was not intended to create conformity to a holiness standard and thereby save us. That's the idea that we get, that the Ten Commandments were presented to us. Just live by these and you'll be faithful to God. Follow the laws in the Levitical Code. Do, do whatever Moses told you to do. If you do those things and you do the festivals and you do the feasts and you offer the sacrifice and you give the offerings, you're going to be great with God. But that is not the purpose of the Scriptures. Again, the Old Testament was, Old Testament was not given to create conformity to a holiness standard and thereby save us if we adhere to the standard, but to demonstrate the impossibility of living up to that standard. That's what the Bible is there for, to show you that you're a sinner. The purpose of the law is to show us that we are hopeless sinners and that our only hope is in Christ. It's always, it's always neat to see this, but you, know, you go into somebody's home and they have the Ten Commandments posted on their wall might be some people here. You have the Ten Commandments posted on your wall. The law of God, the famous Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses for Israel. And, and, and it's not wrong to have the Ten Commandments obviously up on the wall of your house, but you have to understand why you have it there. You cannot, should not, must not have the Ten Commandments on your wall as a declaration that we live by these rules. Children, look, we put the Ten Commandments up here. Here's what we want you to live by. Just follow the Ten Commandments. You will destroy your children if that's your, if that's your play. We don't put the Ten Commandments up to show that we're living by these rules. We put the Ten Commandments up as a declaration that we are incapable of living by these rules. Children, here's the Ten Commandments. I want you to read these and see these and realize you will never keep them in your entire life. And that's why you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments are there to show us the desperate need that we have so that we might see Christ and surrender to Him, to have Him intervene and save us, which He did by the sacrifice on the cross. That's the only way. Martin Luther, the great reformer, of course, was so impacted by the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and what it said about salvation. He came to this revelation and was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, and he said this, the principal point of the law is to make human beings not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to see grace, and so come to the blessed Christ. Well, in the coming messages, we're going to get to see in beautiful detail the blessed Christ, and thank you for weathering the storm through these three more difficult messages that are going to get us there. But God's going to respond to our predicament, and He's going to show us the great provision of His Son and the sacrifice of our Savior. All right, you can see that what we've been doing in this message is we're building a statement, and we're going to come back to it just in a few moments and, and, um, and affirm the whole thing. If I'm to walk in the way of peace, I must admit my sinfulness, but I'm inclined to resist the obvious, being all consumed by my own sin. And until I accept what God has revealed in His Word, here it is, I risk missing out on the salvation He offers. 
Now, I hope by now that you're convinced, if you weren't already, but I hope you're convinced and maybe I hope that even more reinforced in your belief that we are all uh, sinners by nature. And God, of course, here's what we understand further about this, and this is why this is such a problem for us. The prophet Habakkuk, in fact, said this, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. And the more common way that we would say this often is God can't look at sin. God can't look at sin. And because of that, it's created, because we have a sin nature now, and God is perfectly holy and can't even look at sin, it's created this incredible chasm between us and God. The relationship is severed. It remains severed until someone who doesn't have the sin problem solves it for us. And that's none of us, because we all have the sin problem. But people still try all kinds of ways to deal with sin in their lives. Some more like Romans 1, where you just throw yourself more into immorality, and some more like Romans 2, where you try to be more moral. We're going to come back to this in much more detail. And in fact, the eight things I'm going to give you here in a, in a moment, I'm just going to touch on. And then when we get to Romans chapter 7, where we see that battle between the flesh, that, that spiritual battle that goes on inside of us, we're going to look at these in even more detail. But For now, let me give you this, eight ineffective ways of dealing with sin, and I'm grateful for Steph in our biblical soul care ministry helping me build this list. So eight, what did I call this? Eight ineffective ways of dealing with sin, and they include, again, very quickly here, escape. That is to say, we distract ourselves with other things in order to forget that we're sinners or we're in sin, or denial. Denial is, uh, this thing that I'm doing is not bad. Uh, But then I could go a a different way with it, and I could talk about minimization, where I say, it isn't that bad. And I start to, to, to compare my sin to other sins I've committed, or other sins that others are committed, and I, I uh, mitigate uh, the, the impact of the sin in my own life or the lives of others. Or I could talk about blame shifting. We deflect We could talk about uh, that old phrase, the devil made me do it, and certainly he's a great cop-out. You know, he's a great excuse for any of us. Ultimately, he's the author of all of this uh, for sure, but then we uh, cast off any personal responsibility for any of this. The devil made me do it, or we can go all Freudian here and just blame our mothers for everything. Um, And I did say that in the first service, and my mom was here, and I don't blame her for these things. I just want that on the record, by the way, because I don't think that was clear at 8.30, when we were all laughing about it. Uh, Succumbing. I surrender to it. I just give it. I just go, you know what? This isn't ever going to change. I've been fighting this sin issue for 20 years or 30 years or 40. You know what? I'm just giving into it. It's just who I am. Or self-hate. I I just, I I find my own spirit just becomes crushed by it and um, consumed by guilt and shame. And that just affects, when I have that self-hate, that's just going to affect every relationship that I'm in, not in a good way. Um, Withdrawal, um, hiding, isolation from relationships, or then, uh, this is a big one, um, penance, um, self-atonement. I try to be good in other areas to supposedly make up for my sin. And again, that's, there's a lot to that list, and we're going to come back to that when we get to Romans chapter 7 and deal with it in some more detail. And none of that, I just say this right now, none of that is going to work. 
None of that's going to help us. Verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Whatever your way is in trying to reach God or deal with sin or any of this, it's not going to work. Okay, it's not going to work. You cannot be justified. Anytime you see that word, just put saved. You're not going to be saved, declared righteous in his sight, since through the law, he's going to say his point again, he's restating his point. The Bible shows just how sinful we are. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And to put a period at the end of this sentence, um, Jonathan Edwards, the pastor, revivalist, said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That sums up the entire message. In fact, we didn't even need to take the last 40 minutes to say anything. I could have just showed you this quote at the start, and that would have been the whole thing. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And so here's the statement all at once. You can follow it along on the screen. And to just say this for yourself, if I'm to walk in the way of peace, I must admit my sinfulness, but I'm inclined to resist the obvious, being all consumed by my own sin. And until I accept what God has revealed in His Word, I risk missing out on the salvation He offers. So let's not have anyone miss out on the salvation that He offers. You, like every human being on the planet, every human being who has ever lived, You want to live at peace. I know you do. Everyone wants to be at peace. Everyone wants to find the way of peace. We want peace inside of ourselves. We don't want the anxiety and all the worry, all the turmoil. We want peace in our relationships. We don't like the conflict. We want peace with our circumstances. Whatever comes our way, we're going to be able to handle it because we know circumstances fall on everyone. And whether we can articulate it or not in this way, people want to make peace with God. They want to have that sense of fulfillment that comes when you know the Creator. They they don't all say it that way, but that's what every human being wants. Because God has put eternity into the heart of every human being. And so let's not resist Him. Let's not resist any part of this message, but reach out by faith to his son, Jesus Christ, and find that peace. Let me pray for us. Father, you are um, so kind and so good to us. And you have provided a way for a people who are not only sinful, but very often, Father, really struggling to admit it. And so, God, I pray that you would bring that realization to to everyone here today. And, God, I pray for those who might be watching on the live stream or on demand or or those who are in the room, Father, who who have not yet become a follower of Christ. And, and God, in this moment, your Holy Spirit may be pressing on them to, to really believe what they've heard today. And the first step is that they would confess their need, confess that they're a sinner. And I pray, God, that your Son would flood in, your Holy Spirit would lead them and save them and forgive their sin. But, Father, this is also a pretty great reminder for those of us who know you. It's so easy to kind of slip back into old patterns and and old ways of thinking and to be influenced by this world, which just is constantly assaulting us. And, Father, I pray that we would be renewed in our own thinking, 
reminded of what you've done for us, the great chasm that has been bridged. Father, that we wouldn't for a minute, however many years we've been walking with Christ, we wouldn't for a minute think that we've done any part of this ourselves. That our initial salvation and the sustaining power that happens every day of our lives all comes from you. So God, help us to walk with gratitude for the sacrifice of your son and the great provision that you've made for us. And God, we pray all these things in his strong name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.